you have all kinds of mental function going on in your brain and electromagnetic changes in your brain, and you can measure these with an, with an EEG or an MRI, these then do things like the frequencies you generate in that state of love, meditation, being relaxed, not being stressed. You have lots and lots of delta. You have lots and lots of theta, lots and lots of gamma, all these wonderful waves. And those waves are doing things like telling your stem cells, giving them, them signals to proliferate. So you have more stem cells, keep you young and healthy and repair your damaged tissue. You have more longer telomeres. It sparks telomere length length changes. It sparks the suppression of cancer tumors. It sparks metabolic improvement. It sparks, in, in one EFT study, one hour of EFT produced changes to 72 genes. So we are literally genetic engineers changing our bodies with our consciousness if we attune to those universal fields of love and compassion and kindness and joy. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is award-winning author Dawson Church. His best-selling book, The Genie in Your Genes, has been hailed as a breakthrough in linking emotions and genetics. His follow-up title, Mind to Matter, reviews the science of peak mental states. Dawson has conducted dozens of clinical trials and founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare to promote groundbreaking new treatments. He shares how to apply the breakthroughs of energy psychology to health and personal performance through EFT Universe, one of the largest alternative medicine sites on the web. Keep listening to the end of the podcast for a special gift from Dawson. All right, well, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I'm super excited today to share somebody I really am very, very impressed with, the author of an amazing book called Mind to Matter, Dawson Church. I study a lot, as most of you know, and I scan books and my soul guides me to what books to buy and listen to. And one day when I was surfing Amazon looking for books on consciousness and uh, I had a whole, you know, several pages full of them, and my soul directed my eyes right to this book, Mind to Matter. And I like to listen to books first because I can do it while I'm driving and working out and things like that. And I listened to Dawson Church books. I have a, a whole notebook full of notes. And as I was going through this, I was just saying to myself, finally, somebody who's, you know, got their head on straight and is teaching real practical spiritual development and isn't playing fundamentalist games or scientific materialist games, but is really tying the whole picture together and giving very practical uh, explanations and meditations and all sorts of offerings on his website for people. And so I reached out to Dawson's publicist who connected us together. And so I am very, very excited to share a very special human being with you, Dawson Church. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Paul, I'm so thrilled to be here. I've known about your work for years too. Respect it. I'm so delighted to be here with you. My pleasure. Well, I have a lot to get through and uh, you've got a 90-minute window. So we'll do as much as we can do. And uh, I have a feeling that we're going to enjoy this enough to do it again. So this could be the beginning of a number of podcasts together, which I hope it is. So with that, um, I'd like to say from studying what I have of your teachings, you seem to have a diverse background. I'd love it if you can share a summary of your developmental history and what led you to writing Mind to Matter, 
and doing the work that you do now? Well, I find myself very moved, Paul, when people suffer. And I see people suffering unnecessarily all the time. And it it so grieves me that so much suffering is optional. And so there are unavoidable suffering, the, uh, things that happen to us in our lives that we can't avoid, that are difficult, that uh, bring us down. But so much of what I see people gra- grappling with and wrestling with is is suffering they don't need to be going through. And so I'm, I'm really moved by that. And I have been for a long time. I remember being a child and, and seeing people suffer. My father was a missionary and we spent a lot of time in Africa. And I just remember seeing people there, some of whom were very, very happy, others of which weren't very happy at all. And so really wondering about this whole question of human happiness. Then, of course, starting to read the great classics, the great tradition of, of human spirituality and how, how various masters of the course of millennia have addressed this question, as well as philosophers and people trying to come at it from other, 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 other points of view. And also, I think I was also motivated by my own suffering because my family was very fractured. I grew up, and I, I realized later I, I had PTSD, and I was a very depressed per- person as a teenager. I remember one day walking past a full-length mirror in a hotel, staring at myself, and I was I had this long, like hippie, brown hair down, like down to my shoulders, and bell-bottom trousers, and a, like a man purse over my shoulder, and looking in, into the face of this guy who was me, and I I thought, wow, that is the saddest face I've ever seen how did I get this way? And, and how can I not be this way? So I, I joined an ashram, I studied the great traditions, uh, read Paul Brunton and Lobsang Rampa and all these, all these spiritual writers um, in my, my teens. And I got better and better and better. I mean, gradually, I began to move the needle, but it was, it was still a, a long, hard slog. And then eventually, after studying many different schools of philosophy and, and psychology, like cognitive therapy and gestalt therapy, uh, I eventually stumbled across energy psychology. And Paul, it was like having been on a, an, a, in, a, in a carriage on a train, a regular train, and then suddenly that train gets hooked up to a bullet train and you just get thrown back in your seat and suddenly you're doing 400 miles an hour. And problems I'd had for decades and hadn't been able to solve. I was able to solve really quickly. Then I began to apply this with other people. I, I applied. I began to practice with people, other people that I, I met, uh, and I found that the, the the look of astonishment on, for example, the face of a Veterans Administration psychiatrist who spent thirty five years treating veterans with PTSD and seeing them improve a little bit, maybe sometimes, and a few of them, and then that psychiatrist suddenly gets exposed to energy psychology and sees in, in themselves, sees themselves breaking through barriers that have been up there for years is profound. So that's what I get to do now. Rather than kind of struggle and suffer and, and move along slowly, I get to not only do a lot of research on these methods, I get to apply them with people. And it is just so gratifying to see those breakthroughs. And, I, and so I'm just committed. I'm passionate about seeing people not suffer and getting these methods to the hands of as many people as possible. That's beautiful. It's funny you mentioned Paul Brunton. I have his collected works and I've studied his stuff for many, many years. And it's uh, he's he's a very interesting person, but you don't run across many people that even know who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think that as as well as psychology, 
we need that grounding in spirituality. And you, you need to, there, there is no bypassing of dealing with your trauma. And so what research in PTSD tells us is that you have to face it. You have to be willing to face it. I know for many, many years in the spiritual community, we taught that you transcend your ego, like Brian Hanulz talks about this to some extent, that the ego is seen as this thing that keeps you suffering, which of course is true and it does, but that you need to transcend the ego. And what I think is much a much more realistic picture based on research is that you have to go and really dig in and face your dark side, face the parts of yourself that hold you back, use advanced psychological tools, and then clear them. If you try and go to spirituality without first clearing the trauma, first clearing all of the human psychological and character issues that hold you back, then you do what, what, what they call spiritual bypassing. And we've seen a whole parade of spiritual teachers over the last 50 years who people respect and who are exalted and who seem like these amazing beings, and they are. And then it turns out they're sleeping with their students or they're embezzling money from people or they're abusing people in subtle ways or obvious ways. And so th- there's a shadow and you you need both. You need spirituality and you absolutely there is, I'm saying this, this, this un, unequivocally because that's what the research shows, is that you absolutely must go into the basement and work on the shadow and clear those parts as best you can for that transcendent part of yourself to be able to shine through your consciousness. Yeah. You know, the ego is an interesting thing. I have a, a perspective on the ego I'd like to just share with you a little bit. You know, the ego is a bit of a paradox, and and I agree with everything you're saying, but uh, the the sort of the take that I have on it after a lifetime of you know doing this kind of work is that it's not about getting rid of the ego as much as it is healing the ego because the ego is what gives us the ability to have a subject object relationship, and without that sense of I or self, there would be no way for love to to move. I define love as the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. And if we don't have a sense of self or a sense of I, then we would be so fused with everything, we'd be back into really what would be more like a magical form of consciousness, uh, which you know is, a, is a, a, an ancient form of consciousness when, when people really felt like you know, they were uh, part of the trees they were part of the rivers and it's what you what you have happening when you're in an ayahuasca journey or on plant medicines you go into that magical form of consciousness but if we heal the shadow and we really grow spiritually then we need we maintain a healthy sense of self or individuality so we can contribute to the world just like you have so beautifully and we realize our oneness with all that is. So the transcendent function or the soul actually is able to use the individual as a vehicle of sharing love, doing things like writing books, running seminars and supporting other people in doing that. And I, I only share that perspective because there's so much uh, ego bashing going on in the spiritual community. I think people forget that without the ego, we have no way to experience the flow of love. I'm so glad you're making that point, because if you do actually read Paul Brunton and many of those those other writers, 
there is this, uh, the ego is portrayed as this obstacle, which of course it is, but a healed ego, a healed self, healed, and I, and I use the terminology in Mind to Matter, in my new book, Mind to Matter, I use the terminology of local self, a non-local self. Yes. And the non-local self, spirit, the universe, whatever, however you conceive that to be, that non-local self is full of, I experience that in meditation, is full of love, full of kindness, full of compassion, full of wisdom, full of creativity, full of every imaginable gift, but it needs something to work through on the material level. It needs a healed local self. Yes. And so the more you heal your local self, the more you release all of the habits of thought and behavior that have been holding you back and keeping you stuck and and keeping you repeating the patterns of the past and the patterns of your ancestors, the more you heal all that stuff, the more like like my, my local self, I mean there are parts of me, Paul, I, I wish we're better. <laughs> <laughs> well me too. And that, but that that's that's why we're here. That's what gives us that's what that's what keeps us real. Someone said to me in a recent, I do teach a lot of live workshops at Omega and Esalen and places like that. And someone said to me, Dawson, you know, you've been you've been doing this personal growth stuff now for fifty years. Don't you come out the other end? And aren't you like you know totally cleaned up at a certain point? I said, I hope so. <laughs> I'm not there yet. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I've I've got Jung's collected works, and I've been studying him for over twenty years as well. And I know you know how incredible of a mind that is, but. Jung said, no tree can grow to heaven unless its roots reach to hell. And I think we all need to be in touch with the dark side of ourselves so that we reach an authentic inner experience of the awareness that what we referred to as the ego doesn't have the intelligence on its own to create meaningful, long-lasting relationships to love and to see into the invisible. So the kind of the paradoxical gift of the shadow of the ego is it brings us down into hell. And when we get enough of it, we know which direction to go to the light for sure. Mm -hmm. It does. Yes. And so then what I found in meditation is that you move to the light over and over and over again. And it's a cyclical process. Oh, I, I just come across some fascinating research, by the way. And um, I'm writing a new book now called Bliss Brain, which will be out in about a year. But it's an extension of chapter one and uh, somewhat chapter two of Mind to Matter. Material I didn't have about the brain, I didn't have, I wasn't able to put in that in Mind to Matter. I'm putting it into this brain. But um, I'm just following a research thread right now, and I don't know the whole story yet, but. Um, I, the, the middle part of Bliss Brain is about the seven neurochemicals of bliss. And the main one, the star of the show, is called anandamide, mm -hmm. a.k.a. the bliss molecule, because the word ananda is a Sanskrit word for bliss, yeah. and the molecular shape of anandamide is identical to THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana. So when we stimulate a lot of anandamide in our brains with deep meditation, we literally get blissed out. We then also have a flood of serotonin. We have, uh, we have, we have dopamine, serotonin balance. We have norepinephrine. We have a whole bunch of performance enhancing chemicals that are, are, are in our brains. But, but it turns out paradoxically, and that frustration. So you sit on to meditate, and your mind wanders. You're distracted. Your your nose tickles. Your your butt aches. You 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 just can't get there. And, and it's just and, and you're like so frustrated with your mind. You think you know the, the, the ego's pulling you out. Mm -hmm. but it turns out there's an amazingly interesting piece of research I'm looking at right now, which shows that 
That produces, of course, stress chemicals. I've done several randomized controlled trials of cortisol. And so it produces cortisol, which is generally not a good thing, and epinephrine in our bodies and norepinephrine in our brains. So now we're having these stress chemicals. But it turns out that those chemicals actually sharpen focus. And then when you pull yourself back into meditation, so now you've been, you've, you've been stuck in the ego, you've been mad at yourself for having a, a rotten meditation, you're a terrible meditator, you're sitting there thinking, here I am sitting cross-legged, I'm such a total failure, and here I, my, my mind is wandering. And that frustration actually generates enough of a burst of norepinephrine to kick you up into heaven. So that hell literally kicks you up into heaven. And I, I'm, the neurochemistry of this stuff is just amazing. And that, that actually fuels your ability, if you stick with it and surrender, it's, it fuels your ability to get back into that elevated emotional state next. Yeah, well, you know, you go right back to Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching and, and you know, yin... Yin can create nothing but yang, and yang has nothing to become but yin. And either of those independently of other each other would collapse existence as it is because those are the basic uh, energetic realities that are behind creation itself. So the point I'm making is if we're only in bliss, then we lose touch with reality and consciousness needs those polarities or it has no way to move, no way to flow. So you know, you, although there's all this sort of, you know, as you know, and as we've been describing, like the ego, this, the ego, that, this is bad, that is bad. If you, I always ask people, what is your first principle? And, you know, if it's God, then what is God? And if it's God, then how wise and how perfect and how intelligent is God? Well, most people say it's the most perfect, the most intelligent, whatever their sort of viewpoint is. And I say, well, remember that when you're complaining about how challenging life is and, about all the stuff you don't like, because if God is God, then there's a reason for all of it. And it's better to figure out what the reason is than just walk around complaining about it all the time. And and what you're describing is really the, dy the, the dynamic relationship between the catabolic force of yang and the anabolic force of yin interchanging with each other. Yes. And what it does is if you practice this long enough one thing that gets easier, because you know that state more, you also start to reset your hormones. And I'm going to write a book probably in 2025 on hormonal balance and uh, nor and um, also neurotransmitter ratios, because these then become set points in your, in your brain and your body. So initially, you taste the bliss. Maybe you have you know, a bunch of unsuccessful meditations, and then you have one great meditation, you taste that state, you now know what that state is, you now know a target to aim at. We actually hook people up at our live events, at our workshops often, to EEGs, because when they can see their brain read out left and right hemisphere, all the brain waves from the slowest wave of delta to the fastest wave of gamma, we then train them. We can train them very quickly that way with that kind of neurofeedback to hit those states. So yes. it states once and then twice and then becomes easier. What then starts to happen is your brain starts to rewire itself. And that famous say, saying of Donald Hebbs in the 1940s of that neurons that fire together, wire together, the pro that process happens quickly. And in this brain, I am reviewing research showing that in one 20 minute meditation alone, you start to turn beneficial genes on. And if you meditate 
uh, well, effectively, for 12 minutes a day for eight weeks, things start to happen. And there's an amazing case history in chapter one of Mind to Matter of this TV anchorman called Graham Phillips, who decided to learn meditation and took a TV crew into Monash University with him. They did a whole suite of, um, of, 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 measurements on his brain, his body, his reflexes, all kinds of cognitive tests. And he then began this eight-week process of learning to meditate, becoming mindful. And even after two weeks, he was calmer, he felt better. But when he went back to Monash and did this comprehensive suite of tests again, after eight weeks, his brain was heavier. His brain was bigger. Some parts of his brain had expanded by two, three, or four percent in just eight weeks. But the most amazing statistic of that, like when I read this, Paul, I just, I mean, it, it, this, I'm, I'm saying, I'm going to tell you this number now. And every time I, I talk about this number, I still am just astonished by it. And so the part of his brain that grew the most was a part of the memory and learning center, the hippocampus, called the dentate gyrus. And this little nub of tissue with, with has tentacles that go throughout the brain it coordinates emotional regulation across multiple brain regions it keeps you calm when you're stuck in traffic it keeps you from getting angry when you're in stuck when you're in line when you don't get the raise or the promotion or the girl or the boy or or the house or whatever it is it stops you from overreacting so emotional regulation is crucial and the dentate gyrus of graham phillips's brain in eight weeks had grown by 22.8%. Now think about that. Only eight weeks, and already yeah. has got almost quarter more physical hardware in his brain of the kind of neural wiring it takes to control your emotions and create a happy life for yourself. That's how quick and substantial the payoff is from doing this. I've studied a lot of people over the last 35 plus years of my career, everyone from Hippocrates to Paramahansa Yogananda to Margaret Newman, an incredible woman and revolutionary nurse. I have great appreciation and gratitude for all these people who came before me. They inspired me, inspired my career, and helped me to reimagine what it means to be healthy. Hippocrates really affected me because his primary dictum, which <laughs> strangely enough is the dictum of the medical system, is first do no harm. So I loved Hippocrates' teachings because he was a man that used about 40 herbs. He had a medicine ball made from a pig's bladder filled with sand that he used with patients. And he was very much into the basic principles of alchemy and really worked to grow his knowledge and to understand life, not just the problems of people such as this isn't working or that's working or, you know, I'm wetting my bed or whatever it might be, but really he looked at people holistically. And he really taught us that there are effective natural means that we should always try first before we go to invasive procedures, which today might be drugs and surgery. I really loved Margaret Newman's teachings when I found them. I was blown away by them. Margaret Newman was a holistic nurse, and she really taught me a very deep lesson about what health really is. She helped me re 
evaluate my own ideas of health and what it means to be healthy. And she showed me that sometimes a person may not have good health, but if they're handling the challenge in ways that grow them, then they truly are a healthy person. And so uh, I really learned to look more deeply into each individual and help them see their challenges as part of their health creation process. I've been really fortunate to be able to coach a lot of clients who reach and exceed their health goals over the years, and I hope that for many of you listening, the Czech Institute has been able to inspire you and educate you to do the same. But there's still so much more to be done. There's a lot to be discovered about human health, how we can heal the world and each other, and it's up to you, the next generation of coaches, thinkers, and innovators to become the new leaders in holistic health and continue to reimagine what it means to be healthy and how we can reach our true human potential. So to help support all of you in becoming the next generation of leaders, over the coming weeks, I'll be releasing some short videos on influential figures in holistic health, people that have inspired me, and I bet they'll do the same for you. I will be releasing two special solo podcasts on the past and future of holistic health, and I think you're really going to love them. And finally, on Black Friday, I'll be holding a special 20% discount on all the original Czech products, plus even greater discounts on new courses and packages. All of the skills you'll learn in these courses serve me very well over my career, and I know they'll do the same for you. At least that's my dream. Keep an eye out on Instagram and on the Czech social media channels for updates on all of these events. Now let's get back to the podcast. I love the podcast. Hope you're enjoying it. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you know, in my own research, and uh, which I share with my students, I found good research showing that the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis can be entrained within as little as seven days. So we can do that. Like, for example, if you drink coffee first thing in the morning, in as little as seven days, you'll be addicted because the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis will be recording the alterations in cortisol levels, adrenaline, and all the related hormones. And then all of a sudden, when you stop drinking the coffee, it's going to expect the coffee to be there. And therefore, you're going to experience you know, a dead head without your coffee because you're not going to have the normal floor of, flow of cortisol because the body's now needing the caffeine to trigger that for you. But the same is, is true of positive things like you're describing. Absolutely. And uh, we are literally rewiring our brains every moment by everything we do repetitively, especially if there's strong emotion attached. So, you know, if I walk by the flowers outside and I look at them and move on, nothing much happens to my brain. If I stand there and really savor the flowers and really enjoy that, like my, my wife and I went walking uh, on the beach yesterday and um, I taught a long virtual workshop all day long. We went for a walk on the beach afterwards and uh, I was totally in my head chattering a lot long about something that we were doing with with uh, with a project and she said darling let's just actually be here <laughs> yeah exactly my my uh my three and a half year old boy he does he as if me and his mama talk anything about work he looks at us and says no me me <laughs> and he knows no cell phones no talk about work with his limited vocabulary he's been doing that since he was about two 
And in you know, when a child is really in the present, they're very aware of when mommy, daddy, or anybody else isn't in the present. Yes. yes. Yeah, and so, so life is calling us to be in the present at, at, at every moment, and it's powerful to do that. So our brains, any, anything we do, do with 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 real enjoyment. So they're watching the sunset with enjoyment. Like I have a new grandchild born just a couple of weeks ago, and I, I we went. And my wife and I just we just like to hold him, stare at him. You're yes, the moment, you're in the moment. Anything that brings you to the moment, and where there's feeling there, it's literally creating pleasure neurons in your brain, and this changes you over time. Like. Um, my big social project. Oh, give me. I'll paint a bigger picture here. So Veterans Day is coming up soon, and this is really a powerful time for me because twelve years ago there was so much frustration in the energy healing community because we were using energy therapies with veterans with PTSD who were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they were getting better quickly. So I was one of a number of people who went to the VA. We were presenting in Washington, D.C. I wound up testifying before the House Homeland Security Committee and the House Veterans Affairs Committee. They asked me to testify on these new therapies for veterans, but nothing much happened then in the VA. And the current head of the VA system, he actually was incredibly opposed to energy therapies. So here we were at a complete impasse with these therapies that research was showing were incredibly effective for PTSD. And this guy, who I won't mention his name, but we called him the roadblock. And he was just like, these therapies are not going to make it into the VA. So out of this immense frustration, we thought, what can we do? We're just a collection of little, you know, therapists and coaches, and and we have no power. We have we don't have any 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 we don't have no power. We have no money. So we started an organization called the Veteran Stress Project, and we thought we're going to going to bypass the VA and offer our services free of charge to veterans. Now, the first year, two thousand and seven, we did not look like a great success. We counted how many clients we'd had, how many veterans we'd worked with over the course of the year. And the number was 12. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a start. <laughs> All right, but not a very promising one. So, but, but again, out of this frustration, we birthed something and that was a substantial something. Today we're doing our, actually we're doing our current count right now, but in the last 12 years, we worked with over 20 thousand veterans. We now work with, with several thousand every year. So now it's it's working. And again, it was that frustration, just like meditation initially, that, that frustration, what can we do? We're powerless. This isn't working. And then we just do the work. You just do the work over and over and over again, whether it's the social work, you, you surrender. You don't get into the frustration. You surrender. And whether it's the social work or the spiritual work, eventually things start to shift and move. So mind to matter. And you know, in my book, I have some astonishing examples of people having a thought, and it just just manifests like within in minutes. Um, other times, it is that that process of surrender, and it's much slower. But but as I trace the science of how we can manifest things, how we do manifest things, we're literally every thought we're having, especially with with passion and emotion, is literally changing our physical brains. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Uh, homeopathy went through the thing. I think it was Jock Benavista, if I remember right, who was really the one that did the original research on homeopathy. And yes. he, you know, he got attacked by the medical community and he got so pissed off because people kept claiming they were repeating his research and it wasn't working. He invested a massive amount of money into robots that could do the research by themselves. And he showed with over a thousand research studies that, that homeopathy worked every time. 
And the only point I'm making is that all good ideas that uh, help the help people heal that don't put money in the hands of the drug lords and the establishment go through this attack. And you know, energy psychology and energy medicine is certainly in that sort of birthing phase right now, where uh, the people that find it are the people that have failed in the medical system and have tried everything else from the surgeries to the drugs to you name it. And then end up at the doors of people like yourself and myself, and all of a sudden, in very short order, they're having rapid results or complete recoveries, and then go, "Oh my God, how come nobody knows about that?" And then you know the word starts to spread like wildfire, and then a new movement is on. So it's, I know you know, it's just a matter of patience, and and I believe love always wins. So it's just a matter of sharing our love and letting it do its magic. Actually, statistically, love does always win, and I can prove it. And uh, I do that in Chapter 2 of Mind to Matter. And this is a totally wild, fun uh, thing to write about. And, and what I try and do as a science writer is I try and make ideas meaningful and connect the dots. Because so many people know a lot, they hear a lot of snippets about science, they don't, they don't put it all together. So I try in my books to really make it clear and understandable and illustrate that with stories. And so, in Chapter 2 of of Mind to Matter, I talk a lot about a study called the Framingham Heart Study, which has been going on since the 1950s and has enrolled now four generations of people who live in Framingham, Massachusetts. And uh, as researchers have access to this treasure trove of detailed data, one of the things they've used it to study is happiness and how happiness spreads. So when you say love always wins, here's one amazing statistic from the Framingham Heart Study, which is that if you have a happy person, their next door neighbor is 34% more likely to be happy. So happiness is contagious. And this whole field of study is called the field of emotional contagion because it uses the tools of epidemiology, looking at infectious diseases, to actually study the spread of emotions. And they found that happiness is contagious. Not only is that person 34% more likely to be happy, people who have contact with that person, but not with you, are going to be 15% more happy, and three layers out, the people of contact with people two layers removed from you are going to be roughly 9% happier. So you're literally producing emotional contagion all around you. In one famous study of Facebook, the researchers manipulated the feeds of, um, of users to have either more positive emotional words or negative emotional words. And by doing that, they found they could influence their behavior. And when the, when the experiment was stopped after two weeks, it had produced emotional contagion in 680 thousand people okay this is two-thirds of a million people it just went viral in facebook uh negative and positive so we are having a huge effect on those around us and that same framingham study shows that that's true for positive emotions but it's less true for negative emotions that negative nelly only has an effect on people two layers out whereas positive pete has an effect on people, a bigger effect on people, and it goes three layers out. So when people are, are, are worried about the state of the world, I have a huge array of statistics of all the good news there is to hear, and it shows that the angels are definitely winning. <laughs> well, no, yeah, no question. And, and the thing is, too, is if we look at that sort of in the physiology of love, love is expansive and fear and negative emotion is contractive. So it's natural. I mean, if you look at studies of energy fields, I'm a dowser and I've done all sorts of techniques and demonstrations with students. Well, I'll take a student 
and I'll use dowsing rods and I'll walk, you know, 60, 80 feet away from them and I'll say, okay, think of a time in your life when you were really stressed or something painful was happening. And oftentimes their energy field will collapse to within one inch of their body. Then I'll go back 60 or 80 feet away and I'll say, okay, now think of a time in your life when you really felt loved, supported, and, and deep connection. And most people's energy field will grow to somewhere between 40 and 60 feet and the rods will open right up. And I can teach almost any student to do this with, with no formal training and dowsing. I said, all you got to do is empty your mind and just allow yourself to feel and just watch what the rods do and they can see it clearly. So when you, when you realize that what we call love is an energy of expansion and fear and negativity is an energy of contraction, then it totally supports exactly what you're saying. And I, I I'll just reiterate that, yes, I really thought you did a fantastic job in your book, Mind to Matter, of using images and clear scientific references and clear examples so that people that don't have a lot of background in science can actually put the puzzle pieces together to get a clear picture. And that's exactly what I did when I wrote my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, which is why I made it so visual and put mind maps on each chapter so people that are too busy could just read the book by reading the mind maps and get the key points. So I really appreciate that you took the effort to do that because this is such important material in the world right now that though there are tons of great books out there, they're not written for people that don't have already a fairly comprehensive knowledge of research and can put the dots together. So I think your book's you know, definitely a form of medicine, quite frankly. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I do put a huge amount of intention into them. I also write them in an altered state. And people say, wow, that's an obscure study. You know, how did you find this study published in the Lithuanian Journal of Sciences in 1971? And it's like, uh, basically, I channeled it. I just sat there and you know, just, just totally open to non-local mind and, and the, the non-local information feel. And, and they said, click here, not click here, not click here, not click here. And suddenly you're, you're unearthing material that no one's ever seen before. Or you're, 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 you're hunting for an analogy of, of things. Um, one, one, like one of, one of the, uh, um, I, I use lots of analogies in the book. Um, I, I was looking for a, a way to explain the double slit experiment, and I thought, man, how do I explain the double? You know, even even physicists have a hard time understanding it sometimes and explaining it to other other people. How do I explain this in a way that my housekeeper will understand? And uh, my wife, I was just noodling on this. My wife and I were playing tennis, and I was just obsessed with this problem. And I suddenly realized, aha! If I were to take this tennis ball and hit it at a redwood fence with, and I dipped it in paint first, and I take out a plank out of the fence, that would be like the electron passing through the double slit in the double slit experiment. So now suddenly, you, you talk about a redwood fence, one plank removed, dipping a, a tennis ball in paint and throwing it or hitting it through, the fence goes through the slit, and, and it only goes through that one area where there's no plank. Suddenly, you know, so I, it's just wonderful... <laughs> to have these these revelations over and over and over again of how to explain all the science in a way that people really can get it. Well, you know, because I know what you're up to, I might be able to give you a gift that could be very supportive of your research right now. Are you familiar with a book called Life Force by physicist Claude Swanson? I am not familiar with that book. I read his earlier book, though, which the title I forget. It's something about the universe. I have both of his yeah. books, but... His book, Life Force, is about 800 pages of solid scientific research on what life force is. 
and goes into all sorts of stuff and even amazing studies on meditation. In fact, one of the studies in that book is quite mind-boggling. I'll share it with you real quick because I think you'll find it fascinating and so will the listeners. There was a researcher in Japan that wanted to know how the sun might be interacting with the acupuncture meridians. And he was an acupuncturist. So he set up a research study in concert with NASA and he hooked up patients with acupuncture needles to sensitive biofeedback monitoring systems so they could actually see the flow of energy through the acupuncture points where they had their electrodes attached to the needles and they simultaneously monitored sun flare activity on the sun using NASA's probes and they found out something that denies contemporary physics. There was an instantaneous reaction in the bodies of people with acupuncture needles in them whenever the sun flare activity came up. And the problem is it takes a photon eight minutes to get here from the sun, but these people's meridian systems reacted instantaneously. Wow. Wow. Showing there is a zero time lag between us and the sun, which means the non-local reality is actually the higher truth. Wow. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you've been following my work for any length of time at all, you know how important organic food and organic farming is, not only for the health of the soil and to protect all the little beings in nature from toxic chemicals and throwing nature completely out of balance, which directly affects us, but also for our own health and well-being. We all need nutrient-dense foods for body-mind well-being. And I'm so excited about the Organifi line. Organifi is a product line made of certified organic source materials. And I've checked this out personally. I can guarantee you that. One of my favorites that I've recently tried is their Red Juice, which has acai and cordyceps infused into it. It's a super, super tasty product. And it revitalizes skin cells, supports your metabolism, has antioxidants in it, age-fighting nutrients, helps mental clarity. It's got a lovely natural sweet flavor. And something that I found really interesting, if you go to Organifi.com and look up the red juice, they show you a price per serving comparison against Palm Wonderful, Red Bull, Gatorade, and a Starbucks latte. And Organifi red juice is actually significantly more cost-effective considering not only the price but the density of the nutrients in it. I think you'll be really amazed with this red juice, along with all their other products. If you go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and as you're checking out, use the code lowercase c-h-e-k-20 altogether, you will get a 20% discount on your Organifi purchases. I'm super excited to share this company. I've tested their products. My family's tested their products. And we're all behind them. And I know you're going to be satisfied because this is the real deal. This is true nutrition. Check it out. As you check out, C-H-E-K-20 to get your discount. Thanks for joining me. Hope you to continue to enjoy the podcast. And if you love it, share it with as many people as you can. Yeah, and there is a similar research from HeartMath 
showing the responsiveness of people's heart coherence and that people in coherence, oh, and this, 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 this was basically the whole question I was trying to answer there is, so we know intention is powerful. We know there's mind to matter. We know thoughts become things, but not equally for everybody. It's an unequal distribution over here. We know some people have a high degree of manifestational skill. They can have an intention and it'll just tend to happen. Other people, like I had one friend whose name was Rose, and um, I, I just really liked her. I knew her for many, many years, and she had beautiful visions of her life and the world and what she wanted for her kids and and just a, a really eloquent uh, describer, uh, dreamer of, of, of beautiful visions. And nothing she ever talked about, hardly anything ever came true. And so what's the difference between somebody like her and another person who just is able to manifest what they want right away? And what I found the difference was, so I, I really was intrigued by this question. I spent a whole chapter actually delving into this. And the answer, it turns out to be brain coherence. People who are in brain coherence there, if you hook them up to an EEG, which I do at my retreats, we hook people up, and those master manifestors, they're in high coherence. All of their brainwaves yes. are marching in step. Those people like Rose, their brainwaves are all over the place. They're not coherent. And so right. uh, that's, that's, that's the crucial thing. And then that, that up, at the very end of the book, I review the research that shows, again, based on the... Now, this is not directly... Um, correlated with solar flares, but solar flares produce changes in the Earth's magnetic field. Yes, and they do. Yeah, beautiful images from NASA showing what these look like as they the, the, the solar wind is rushing past us at the rate of like three million miles an hour and just, just distorting the Earth's field. But what this research showed was that the the heart rate variability of a meditator, when mapped against a month of that solar activity, that geomagnetic activity, the two match. In other words, that person is literally in sync with the universe. I'm getting chills as I say this. When I when I read that study and talked to the, the researcher who 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 led it, um, it was amazing. And not only that, he and I then did some some extrapolation of that. They're now doing research that shows not only are you in sync with nature, with with the universe, when you're in coherence, this state of being 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 coherent, brain coherent, heart coherent, you are also literally Paul in sync with everybody else in the world who is also in sync, which is how we now have a plausible explanatory mechanism for synchronicity, clairvoyance, distant healing, all of these things. But I don't, do not know that particular study. I'm going to look that up for sure, because that's, that's very much in line with this other work. Yeah, another one that goes hand in hand with what you're saying right out of the same book by Claude Swanson, he, he's showing the effects of correlation. And so what he did is he took a group of meditators and just had them do their own thing. And then he got people like to go into pairs and meditate together. And then I think it was eight weeks. It's been years since I read the study, but it is in the same book. And then what he did is he took people. So he would take two people from the group where they just meditated individually, like at home by themselves. And he took one to one laboratory and took another to another laboratory and they wired up to electroencephalograms and then they used a strobe light and they would flash the strobe light in the eyes of one of the two people and the other person in the laboratory 50 miles away 
And so what they found is the people that didn't meditate together, no, there was no correlation between people in the two different laboratories. But then when he took the people that had meditated together, like sitting there intentionally meditating together, and he put one of them in a laboratory 50 miles away and another one, and only one of them got exposed to the strobe light, when they flashed the strobe light in the eyes of one of them, the other one's electroencephalogram response was identical to the person who was getting the light flashed, but there was no light for the second person. Wow. Yeah. So he showed that they are totally entrained. We were connected in all these ways. So we act and think and behave most of our lives as though we're separate from each other, from the universe, not realizing we're intimately in entwined with the universe. But one qualifier here is that there are lots of different flavors of things going on in the universe. There's a lot of fear out there. There's a lot of fear in society. And I run into this in, with, with people I talk to, and they're afraid of this, they're afraid of that, they're afraid of the next thing. And there's all this love. And so you have to, you have to habituate yourself to tuning to that channel of love. You have to do that over and over and over again. And as you yes. do that, that starts to become your reality. If you wouldn't mind, Paul, you gave me a definition of love about 15 minutes ago. I want to hear that yes. again. It was beautiful. What was your definition of love again? I'll give you two of them. I've meditated on love for years and I have a deep relationship with my soul and I teach people how to communicate with their own souls because the soul is God within and, and it'll guide you to whatever you need to know. So I, I asked my soul, I need a working definition of love because there's a lot of confusion about that. My, set, my soul said to me, Paul, love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. Love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. And the other definition my soul gave me is that love is consciousness becoming aware of itself. Wow. Wow. Mm. Consciousness becoming aware of itself. That's... That is uh, what we're we're here to do, and 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 we're, we're here, who we're here to be. And you know, a, a life lived from that perspective is very different from a life lived just being um, influenced by the random events around us. That's why I urge people: if they, if you do one thing, just meditate first thing in the morning and set up your day by orienting yourself to that source of love. If you do that, then you're deliberately using your consciousness to plug into that source and sending a signal that you believe that that is important, that's paramount, that's the foundation of your day. If you do that over and over and over again, day after day after day after day, you're tuning yourself to that, that signal. You're also making, by definition, an important choice to not tune yourself to the signal of the chaos in the world around you. And so when I wake up, for example, I, I was at my men's retreat uh, last month, and there were all these men there, and some must wake up and meditate together in the morning. But I watched a couple of guys waking up in the morning, getting st stumbling out of bed, and picking up their wireless mobile devices or cell phones and looking at them first thing. They're checking Facebook, they're checking email. That is definitely not what you want to orient to first thing in the morning. First orient to the higher. First orient to love, then go deal with the world from that anchoring in love. Because if you're anchored in love in that way, you then deal with the world in a whole different way, your consciousness is different, and you then create in a whole different way. So that is that important statement 
of where you plan to be with your life by orienting yourself in the morning to the news of the universe. That, that's, that, that's the only place with news worth hearing in the morning is the universe. So you, 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 it's just amazing. You, you, you orient there, you meditate, you, you, you leave your local mind for half an hour or however long it is, merge with non-local mind, and suddenly creativity and joy and love just burst through you. You just are this vibrant being just overflowing with all of these gifts because you plugged into the only source of that that mystery and those those gifts that, that really count. So you're, you're plugged into source, plugged into non-local mind. Now you are functioning as a local expression of that non-local mind and there's abundant love and joy, productivity, creativity, all of these things just pouring through you when you orient yourself every day in that state. Yeah, I tell people to to create a love GPS or a dream GPS. So I say first thing you do in the morning is write down what your dream is for the day. For a lot of my patients and clients and students, I say take just like a little postcard. You can go in any art shop and just get blank postcards. That you, you know they're made of watercolor paper, and you can draw things on them and make your own postcards. I say mm-hmm. just draw, just do a five minute sketch. So if you want to have a happy, sunny day, then draw a a sun with a happy face on it. And that sets your GPS bearings. And I say to them, if you're driving to a specific location and you've set that into your map program in your phone, and instead you take a wrong turn, it will tell you, turn around, do a U-turn, take a left. It'll guide you right back to the path. And I say, whatever your dream is for the day, if your dream is to have happy, healthy relationships or you know there's somebody at work that's challenging, then your dream today might be, I act honorably, respectfully, and lovingly to so-and-so. And then if you just make the first few minutes of your day a focus on honing your GPS coordinates to that dream or to that expression of love, then anytime somebody's interacting with you in a way that's pushing you off course, you know how to handle yourself and you know not to get sucked in and you can just excuse yourself from the discussion, or you can say, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time staying connected at the heart right now. Please forgive me, but I must take a time out. I will reconvene when I can stay connected at the heart and go on your way. And you don't need a phone to do that. You can do it just through conscious intention and putting your compass right down in your chest. You can do it. And also when you do that, then you are signaling all similar vibrations in the universe. So when you are on that wavelength, then you're in, in touch with, you're in communication with all other people who are in, in touch with that. And so that's why there are these huge planetary waves of goodwill. And I certainly, I'm, I'm not a Pollyanna. I don't deny the things that are happening. I mean, there are lots of things to be concerned about. But when you're tuned into the news of the universe, you are incredibly aware of the um, the good happening in uh, at the end of my my new book that's coming out in about a year, Bliss Brain. I uh, toward the end of the book, I'm talking about the absolutely staggering improvement in the human condition over the last century. Because again, with so many bad things in the news, I wanted to really paint a reality picture. And I, I so I have a just maybe I picked about ten facts from. Um, from studies that tell a different narrative. Like right now, there's a narrative with, with, with fires in the rainforest. Well, in the Amazon rainforest. Well, uh, if you look back at the last 10 years, deforestation of the Amazon has dropped by four-fifths. Uh, today, our, 
our amount of carbon we generate per dollar of GDP is one half of what it was in 1990. Um, in the last 15 years, one billion people were the bee have escaped extreme poverty. The number of people without access to clean water has halved in the last decade and a half. And the, the, the number to me that is most indicative of a massive change in consciousness is that Google searches have changed. And searches for words, homophobic words, racist words, sex, sexual slurs, and there, you know, there are people who want to read those jokes and those you know those stories and and have a lot of anger and they're they're searching for homophobic or sexist or racist terms pull in the last decade google searches for those terms are down by and I asked people in my class to guess this, and maybe you can just, just everyone, just, just if you're listening now, just guess. I'm, I'm telling, I've given the, the game away by telling you that they're down, not up. But uh, just, you know, just do you want to just maybe guess how by how much they're down? Oh, I don't know. If I had to just take a guess, I would guess forty percent. Double that, eighty percent. The down eighty percent in the last ten years, and for very statistical reasons, that uh, that number understates the drop. And I won't get into why it understates the drop, but uh, it's the down eighty percent in the last ten years. We there is a massive change in consciousness happening. People are just not interested in all that old stuff they used to be. Now there is still a huge number, a huge minority of people who are clinging to the old paradigm, but the old paradigm is crumbling really, really fast. And there are far more people who are into the new new one. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the number of people like yourself that are really putting good material out there and getting to go to workshops that are really teaching them. I mean, people like Deepak and Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle and a long list of people are really penetrating the consciousness of humanity. And, you know, as we said, love expands and fear contracts. And I think that it's a damn good thing this is happening because we can't keep playing these old games too long before we collapse nature and and end up in troubles that are going to make, make us forget about all our racial, ethnic, and religious differences because it'll be all hands on deck or all hands goodbye. Yeah. So the statistics you're giving me are are... I'm very grateful to hear those. Thank you for sharing that because uh, as much as I have a spiritual practice and do the things that I do, uh, I must admit that I do get concerned with with what's going on in the world. And to hear those statistics right now is uh, wind in my sails. So thank you. <laughs> oh, I had an embarrassment of Richard. I, I had hundreds of studies to choose from, and I only allowed myself to write about 10. So I just had to just pick 10 like that. But there are um, there are so many metrics like that. And again, those don't negate all of those problems. We still have to solve those problems. But um, one of the things, the trends in the last um, few decades is that these esoteric practices like acupressure, energy medicine, energy psychology, meditation, these used to be reserved for a very small part of the population. And I've gone back into history as best I can, trying to figure out what percentage. And it turns out to be a funny number. It turns out to be 1%. So there's all this, you know, anger and upset in the in the in the in, in the in the news and about 
the, the financial impact of 1% of the people having so much, much of the wealth. But um, it turns out in terms of the spiritual wealth, it's always been about 1% of people in medieval England, medieval Germany, going back as 500 years in Tibet. We, can, we, we have enough statistics to know how many people were doing some kind of spiritual practice really in, in a really sincere way. And it turns out to be 1% in virtually every society in every historical epoch, except that it was 1% in America were meditating in 1980. But by, 19, by, by, by 2005, 4% were meditating. And in the last couple of years, over 15% are meditating regularly now. So people are practicing and doing these things in, in, a, in, a, in a greater way. And we're bringing these kinds of practices now, not just in into special places like the monastery, the temple, the woods, uh, these sacred places. We're bringing the, I mean, I, I've taught, I've done a circle with veterans with PTSD in Fort Hood, the biggest military base in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, we've done this yeah. now with people who are highly traumatized. We've done this with Rwandan orphans whose, whose parents were hacked to death in front of their eyes in the 1994 genocide. We've done this with, with highly traumatized people. We're bringing these, these methods into these populations, and they're really working. So now you don't go away and become a monk and hide behind a wall your whole life. Now you're uh, an EMT. You're a, you're a VA psychiatrist. You're a medical doctor. You are, you are bringing your... You're bringing these practices right to where suffering people are, and that's what's so different now. We're able to transform huge amounts of human suffering right where it is. It's not, not the case anymore that these energy healing practices are just available to a very small number of people, and it's occluded in these special institutions. They're now really reaching the people that they need to reach. As a listener of Living 4D with Paul Check, we know you're dedicated to mastery. Mastering your health, mastering your profession, mastering parenting, mastering your dream. And mastery was exactly what Paul and Gavin Jennings had in mind when they created the Czech Academy. It's about creating true masters in resolving deep health challenges and masters of optimal human performance. So how do you reach this mastery? Students at the Czech Academy learn the essential components of what it means to be a human being and to have a body. They learn to see how diet, lifestyle, exercise, and mental-emotional factors interact with one another and need to be addressed. And they are trained to use a massive toolkit of assessments to provide them with deep insights into their clients. In short, you'll learn Paul Czech's entire system of holistic health from A to Z. And from the first moment of the Academy, you'll practice what you learn in your own life. That's the key to real mastery and personal growth. The Academy also supports each and every student with mentorships, faculty who are themselves mastered in their fields, and a passionate community of fellow students and practitioners. That means you'll have all the support you need to implement what you learn in your life and in your practice. And you'll achieve all this for an affordable monthly fee. If you have the commitment, passion, and dedication it takes to become a true master of holistic health coaching, then we invite you to apply to the Czech Academy now. Visit us online at czechacademy.com. Now, back to Living 4D with Paul Czech. Yes. You know, I recall reading a passage in a 
book. It was a, a book on consciousness or something. I don't remember exactly, but the passage stuck with me and they cited Fred Hoyle, uh, the famous physicist. I think he's an astrophysicist as saying at any time now, I expect to find a Rishi at the end of one of my mathematical equations, which he was, which he was saying because he had also been studying mysticism and people like, you know, the Tao Te Ching and, and the related classics and was finding that what he was learning in mysticism was actually what he was learning through astrophysics, quantum physics, and all the things that he was doing professionally. And in your book, Mind to Matter, you said science has become the contemporary voice of mysticism. And I'd love it if you could expand on exactly what you mean by that. I was so intrigued when I was reading about those uh, quantum physicists, Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr and, and the whole group of them, and how almost universally they regarded quantum physics as the interface between the mystical and consciousness and human awareness. I mean, they, they saw quantum physics as the interface, uh, as turning the, the, the invisible visible. So um, there are a lot of scientist mystics, and it's hard not to become a mystic if you're into science, because there is so much there that is, um, is, is so aligned with the great traditions of human awareness. So it used to be expressed in terms of spiritual concepts and spiritual terms. But now, more and more, we can quantify it. And I like quantifying it because, and I don't want to sound dis dismissive here, be but because I want to know what is window dressing and what is an active ingredient. Uh, what is the inert filler and what is the active ingredient in the pill? I mean, you see all these Buddhist monks in Thailand and they're all wearing saffron robes. And I think, you know, well, well why are they all wearing saffron robes? Because the Buddha was wearing a saffron robe and he was, he was enlightened. Well, why was he wearing a, a saffron robe? Because his, his blue robe was at the cleaners. So <laughs> there are all these, and, and then suddenly you think it's got to be a saffron robe. It's got to be this, 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 this belief. And so we, we have all these beliefs around spirituality and some of them are effective, but I think a lot of them are just window dressing. And a lot of them are religions, religious trappings that actually separate people. So like I teach this method called eco-meditation and it is brutally stripped down. There's no philosophy, no religion to it at all. It's just sit this way, breathe this number of breaths a minute, relax this muscle. It's just, it just paint by numbers. But it turns out that now we've, that we've got um, um, neuroscientists hooking people up to MRIs and EEGs who are doing this, this stripped down form of eco-meditation that if people use eco-meditation, they go to the same kind of state that a master meditator often takes years, 10,000 hours to reach. And um, this one neuroscientist who just published a study of eco-meditation was saying in her study that, she, I mean, she was absolutely amazed. She said people doing this meditation the very first time, non-meditators were in elevated states, and this, this particular is, is measuring a brainwave called gamma, which is this high-frequency wave characteristic meditators. She was saying they're in these states that usually only master meditators achieve, and then only after years of meditation, and they were there the first time. So that's the beauty of science. Science is showing us what is window dressing, what is the 
filler? And what's the real active ingredient in here? And it turns out that if we do this, we can develop a hyper-efficient way of getting people to meditation. I know it took me years to establish a, a daily practice because I tried to follow the instructions of the, the meditation schools. And I closed my eyes and tried to empty my mind. I could not do that. And the mind is not designed to be empty. The mind is designed to be full of stuff, especially bad stuff. I mean, the mind is highly adaptive that our minds have a negativity bias. You, your caveman ancestor needed to be thinking about the tiger that almost got him yesterday and the tiger that might get him tomorrow. So all of the brain's spare capacity is gobbled up by this. There are these two nodes called the default mode network. Yeah. And anytime the brain has spare capacity, the default mode network grabs it and starts using it. And the default mode network does those two things. It thinks about the tiger that you saw yesterday that you escaped from and the one that you might escape, may have to escape from tomorrow. And that's why we close our eyes to meditate and we're thinking about the insults and wounds and hurts of the past and the problems of the present and future. And so that's just the way the brain's designed to work. And so it's really important to give people instructions that will get them past that quickly because the the usual ways of doing it like i was told by my spiritual teacher at 15 years old close your eyes still your mind empty your mind of thoughts it's just not going to happen the brain is designed to think and so um you want to learn these efficient science-based methods because um like there are always controversies paul people will say well this was just just one i remember when i was learning eft acupressure tapping i had um this is like 15 years ago and there were a lot of people a lot of practitioners doing telephone sessions and they said oh phone sessions are even better than live sessions they're they're so powerful my intuition kicks in i can't see the person and i thought wow phones that these people really believe strongly that phone sessions are better than live sessions so i did a randomized controlled trial and found that no they're not (laughs) They're, they're, they're very significantly less effective than, than live sessions. And so science just gives us as answers like that. So in, in these two books, uh, Mind to Matter, Right Now, Bliss Brain, A Year From Now, I'm really applying a scientific lens to, lens to this. Now, people may have shibboleths. They may have spiritual preferences. And I'm, I'm just not getting into all that stuff because I don't know. What I do know, though, is what science tells me. And I'm also very fr- frank in both books about what science doesn't tell us yet or what science suggests is going on. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is giving us incredibly valuable pointers into what we don't know and where science needs to do do more research and look next. Yes. Uh, two things come to my mind. One, I, I was going to ask you about that eco-meditation. And I remember as I was going through your book, I know you referred people to a website uh, to practice the eco meditation, and with all my busyness, I never got a chance to go check it out. Um, I imagine that's something you'd rather direct people to the website than describe. Yes, just go to the website. It's just mindtomatter.com. It's the book's website, mindtomatter.com. And when you go there, you can download a couple of chapters from the book. You can download eco meditation. You'll be pointed to seven very, very brief meditation tracks. Uh, that are free there, and also a longer one, and also get the instructions for EFT tapping, which is my my favorite, uh, really quick stress reduction technique. Yeah, it only takes about a minute to do, and it, it uses acupressure, but very very quickly regulates the meridian system. So all of that stuff is gathered at that mindtomatter.com website. Great, yeah, I just love people to find that, and um, 
I've been meaning to do that for a while, but I'm as busy as you are, I'm sure. And, and because I'm already deeply engaged in a, a Tai Chi practice and meditation practice, it's not like I'm looking for something to help me because I'm quite well established, but I loved what you shared about it. And I have plenty of experience with the kind of science that you're doing. So I'm just grateful that I can direct people to that web, to your website, Mind to Matter, so that they can you know, get a hold of techniques that are probably going to work for them at the level that they're at. And while we were talking and we were talking about, you know, scientists that are mystics, a name popped into my head. I'm, you must be familiar with William A. Tiller. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I presented at several conferences with Bill Tiller. Yes. Well, that's a blessing from God right there. His stuff is incredibly interesting, and uh, he has—he uh, actually first turned me on to this whole idea of coherence. And he gave me—I was looking at one of those those simple analogies, Paul—and he—he uh, he gave it to me in one of his books. He talked about, and again, here I was wrestling with how to illustrate the difference between master manifestors who can manifest stuff easily and rose who, who can't. And so Bill said, if you take in his one of his books, he says. If you take an incandescent or an LED bulb, 60-watt bulb, it has light that's out of phase. It's still very useful to have this non-coherent light skittering around a light light of a room, and that 60 watts of, of those light rays out of phase, n- not in coherence, uh, form a useful function. They light up your room. But he said if you take that same 60 watts and put all of those those particles and those waves of light in phase, that's a laser. And that 60-watt laser can cut through a sheet of steel. I thought, bingo, there's my analogy for mental coherence and why people like Rose can't manifest and people who are great manifestors can manifest. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as you know, Dawson, there is uh, a wide divide in the scientific community as to what consciousness is, what mind is, and whether consciousness is an emergent property of brains or matter, or our brains and all that we see in our life ultimately the products of consciousness. So I know you go into this in your book, but I'd like to you know, share your views on this with the listeners because I figure the more truth they hear from Dawson, the more likely are to read the book. So could you just share what your perspectives on what consciousness is, what mind is, and whether consciousness is an emergent property of brains or brains are an emergent uh, formation of consciousness? Well, you know, I try not to be sarcastic or snide. And uh, unfortunately, I have a wife and colleagues who will correct me if I am. But I'm going to allow a little bit of, of sarcasm over here, Paul. So, so uh, consciousness is an emergent property of brains. That statement is as true as saying that this podcast you're listening to now is an emergent property of your phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean it's it's absurd. Is you know people uh, we're we're like the we're like the the the, the people looking at um, a phone. And hearing Paul and Dawson coming out of the phone and then saying, well, it's totally clear that Paul and Dawson are in this phone because the phone is the source of this hardware is the source of the signal. What our brains are is our brains are transceivers of 
consciousness from information fields and projectors of that consciousness into the world around us in surprising ways. And we were able to do amazing things with our brains. So roughly the first half of Mind to Matter is all about the way we change stuff change molecules, change matter in our bodies, inside our bodies. But the second half of mind matter is all about how in this amazing process of of being this transducer of reality from these great universal fields into material reality, we literally can change the four forces of consciousness, the four forces of physics. Now, I I had no idea. I mean, mind to matter was as much of a jaw-dropping surprise to me, Paul, as it is for the people who who read the book. Because... um, I had no idea that our consciousness alone, just consciousness, can change each one of the four forces of physics. And I won't tell, I mean, the, the, this book is full of studies about this, but I'll, I'll tell you just one of these. Was the, the healer in this particular case was my dear friend, uh, Dr. Bill Bangston, and um, he's been a much-studied uh, energy healer. I don't know how many randomized controlled trials there are of his work now, but probably at least 15. And most of his work is with mice. And typically these mice have, have cancer. They have mammary gland cancer. They, have, they develop these huge tumors that crush their organs and they die in between 15 and 20 days. No, no mouse has ever lived beyond 21 days once they are infected with the, this, this tumor agent. And then these mice are used for cancer experiments. So Bill uh, is a healer. And so Bill, in one of his very first experiment, they had the mice in the cage and um, Bill thought that that when he did energy healing with the mice, they wouldn't develop tumors. And he was really upset when they did. And so they developed tumors. The tumors looked bad. They looked pretty sick after, you know, day seven, day 10. The tumors began to grow. But the mice were pretty active still. We were running around the cage, didn't seem too, 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 too sad about it. And eventually the tumors began to implode and shrink and become necrotic. And the mice lived to 21 days, 25 days. Not only did they wind up living out the entire normal lifespan of a lab mouse, they actually then were immune to cancer in in the future. So there was all this research about Bill, and I have a lot of it summarized in Chapter 1 of Mind to Matter. But in this one study, they were trying to figure out what was going on here. So they had Bill work on mice in a lab in one part of the university that was painted green, and he was doing this distantly. He was doing this distance of about 30 miles. And then in another lab, there were another batch of mice, and this lab was painted pink. And so he wasn't working on the pink mice, only on the green room mice. And he was told to send energy to them at random times. And he was using a pager. And so random times the pager would beep, he would then send energy to the mice. Under the cages of the mice in both the green room and the pink room, there was a, a, a batch of equipment measuring the electromagnetic fields in that room. And so they were fairly stable all the way through the experiments uh, 24-7, except that at those random moments when Bill sent healing energy to the mice in the green room, the electromagnetic measuring equipment deviated from its usual pattern, and it deviated many times by over 20%. It deviated only at those times he was randomly asked to send healing, not at other times, and it never budged in the pink room in the other lab, okay? So here we have consciousness at a distance changing electromagnetism, one of the four fundamental forces of physics. Now, if this isn't 
wildly exciting that we can literally use this consciousness we have, this brain we have, to change the world around us. I mean, it's just this 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 is this is the beginning of a new scientific revolution and 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 there's no way you can ever again think of consciousness as being something that's a product of a brain you realize that you're tuning into consciousness fields these fields are rich with information and what your brain is really good at doing is translating those but you also have a choice of which ones you tune into don't tune in to the fear deliberately tune out of the fear, tune into the love. When you do that, you have all kinds of mental function going on in your brain and electromagnetic changes in your brain. And you can measure these with an, with an EEG or an MRI. These then do things like the frequencies you generate in that state of love, meditation, being relaxed, not being stressed. You have lots and lots of delta. You have lots and lots of theta, lots and lots of gamma, all these wonderful waves. And those waves are doing things like telling your stem cells, giving them them signals to proliferate. So you have more stem cells, keep you young and healthy and repair your damaged tissue. You have more longer telomeres. It sparks telomere length length changes. It sparks the suppression of cancer tumors. It sparks metabolic improvement. It sparks, in, in one EFT study, one hour of EFT produced changes to 72 genes. So we are literally genetic engineers changing our bodies with our consciousness if we attuned those universal fields of love and compassion and kindness and joy. Yes. You know, as you were speaking, what came to my mind is an ancient metaphysical saying that is profoundly true that is simply this. You may have heard it before. You bring forth that which you gaze upon. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Well, what is what is it that you think consciousness is? I mean, I know that's a deep question. Um, I've investigated it myself. I have some concepts I could share, but I'd like to know what what is it that if you had to say what consciousness is, what would you how would you encapsulate that? Well, I, I think that rather than defining it academically, um, which I'm not very good at, uh, I can tell you what my experience is, and my experience is that. I personally am conscious that people around me are conscious and that people around me are conscious and attuned to different types of reality and different types of emotional and spiritual experience. And I choose, for example, to associate with people and spend time with people who um, are in a state of consciousness that matches mine. I can feel when I'm, I'm with somebody who's in a very dissonant state of consciousness. When I'm just, for example, I work with people who have serious mental illnesses, and I can feel that um, I can feel where they are, and I empathize with them, and I can feel that they're not a match for for me. Um, right. So that's that's one way in which I experience my own consciousness and other that of others. I also experience my consciousness being able to attune to either the positive or negative polarity of reality. And yeah. I get, I can easily get sucked into worrying and catastrophizing, and um, thinking negatively, and and all the default mode network specialties. I can get sucked in there, and if I don't rescue myself, and I, if I don't extricate myself from that, then I can spend unhealthy time there, and it makes me feel bad. Of course, it's producing cortisol, it's destroying brain cells, having a whole bunch of bad effects. So I, I, I that that's another ability of consciousness is to associate and direct itself 
in certain directions and not in others. But then what I talk about in Mind to Matter, in chapter one at the beginning, chapter seven at the end, I talk about local and non-local mind. And so what I experience in meditation, in meditation, when I still myself and then practice, there are seven steps to eco-meditation, practice those seven steps, I find my belief in my local self and my consciousness of a local self quietens down. In fact, uh, research shows that the prefrontal cortex, which essentially constructs our sense of self, function in that part of the brain drops by around 40% when people hit that kind of a state. Now, that's that's basically a loss of a sense of self. The other part of the brain that goes dark is the parietal lobe, which locates you in time and space. So you're no longer located in space or in time. You're drifting out there in the universe, no sense of self. And that is the experience of the mystics, unity consciousness. You now experience everything as one. There isn't even a you. There isn't even an it. There isn't, there, there's, there's no other. You're just out there. So my experience in meditation is that I leave local mind and I merge with non-local mind. And then mm-hmm. after a while, I... And kind of complete with that process of merging. I've been out there in the universe for a while. I'm in, in a state of extreme bliss. I mean, so much love and joy. I just cry sometimes. I'm just absolutely so overwhelmed with gratitude. I, I literally, I open my eyes up meditation. I, I'm just tears are, are streaming down my face of, of ecstasy. And I feel so much love. I, I don't know what to do with it all. Every, everything I look at seems to be infused with love. And you're literally looking at, at the dance of particles and the table and the chair and the carpet and your own body. And they all look just be magically alive. And so you then descend into this body. So then, Paul, <laughs> I have to go do email. I have to go uh, meet, make payroll. I have to go. <laughs> yeah, well, Paramahansa Yogananda once said, no matter how close you get to God, you still got to pay the mortgage. <laughs> I know. So I then like this morning I did this. I thought, how do I interface now? How do I move from being this elevated consciousness to being to doing my work, doing my job. So what I did was I, I walked around my office and I just blessed everything. I blessed the books. I blessed the emails. I blessed the projects. I blessed the people. I blessed especially the people I didn't like or I'm having trouble with or I, I'm having you know, issues with. I blessed everybody. And then I started work. And that is a very different way to approach uh, life. In some of the research I'm reviewing in Bliss Brain, there is research on how productive people are when they're in those flow states, when they're approaching their work in flow. And here is the staggering difference. In one study, a 10-year study of peak performers by McKinsey Consultancy, they found these peak performers, when they were in those elevated states, their productivity quintupled, went up by 500%, not 5% or 50%, 500% improvement in productivity in those states. Another study by DARPA, which I mentioned briefly in Mind Matter and go to more in um, in Bliss Brain. It's, uh, that's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. They, they've been doing these r- r- amazing pieces of research since the 70s. Anyway, this DARPA study found that in those states, your ability to solve complex problems increases by 400 and 
That's a five-fold increase in your ability to solve complex problems. So now you sit down at your computer and you bring your meditative state to the world and you aren't just in a state of frustration or despair or getting by. You are inspired and you're five times as productive as the guy next to you who hasn't bothered to spend half an hour in bliss brain every morning. So you are then able to affect the world. So that's why I'm so optimistic about these problems like deforestation and species extinction and global warming and population and climate change. I mean, all of these things, they're problems. But imagine if we have 500% more capacity to solve these complex problems that we have today. And you don't just have 1% of the people doing it now, you have 14% of the people doing it. Suddenly, there is this explosion of ability on the planet. Not just that, is we're literally changing our genes. We're turning genes on and off. We're down-regulating all these genes that can harm us, and we're up-regulating all these genes that make us vibrantly healthy. We're literally intervening in our own physical bodies, growing that dentate gyrus, growing those beneficial parts of our brain, turning on cancer-fighting genes. We're doing all this stuff with our consciousness. No species has ever had the ability to do this in the history of evolution. So what I argue in, in at the end of this brain is, we're just getting started. We've seen this radical up-leveling of human ability and human well-being, human thriving in the last two centuries, and we're just getting ourselves warmed up. We're about to see an absolute explosion of thriving, not just for human beings as a species, but of necessity of the planet, and that is where I believe we're headed. Yeah, that's lovely. You know, one of the things that's very apparent to me after reading hundreds of books on the issues of consciousness, God, metaphysics, death, meditation, and almost anything related to these topics is that a significant number of scientists are very materialistic and have strong, closed-minded viewpoints on these issues. But it's quite clear to me that as a man who's devoted himself to meditation, Tai Chi, Qigong, and deep exploration using shamanic methods, which include non-entheogenic journeys and entheogenic journeys, that a large percentage of such viewpoints or judgments are intellectual and not based on authentic experience. And as Jung said, intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experiences. Such issues are a concern of mine because my own actual experiences, and many of them, um, I see a lot of people believing what they read, which only contributes to the dangers of scientific materialism and its destructive impact on nature. In other words, because there's such a strong foothold in the establishment, if you will, and you know, you look at people like Dean Radin's research, it's mind-blowing. You look at William A. Tiller, you look at the writings of Larry Dossie, you look at your book and many others, and then you look at all the stuff out there and being taught in schools that's saying all that stuff's bullshit. You shouldn't even look at it. That's a bit of an issue. I'm just, what what are your thoughts and feelings on this regard? But you've already kind of answered it and saying, well, if we just keep on working together, that pretty soon we'll heal them too. (laughs) Yes. And I think that the emotional contagion research in chapter two of Mind to Matter shows that when you heal yourself, you do heal the world because you have this contagious effect on people all around you. So you have a contagious effect on people you have personal contact with, but you're also having emotional contagion propagating into people you don't even know, and with that effect going three layers out. So the emails you write are different, and the words you speak are different. And the, you know, like 
my wife and I were walking, taking a walk the other day, and there was a lady and woman and her little son, and we smiled with the little boy and smiled at her, and she smiled back, and suddenly we all felt better. Of course, we were releasing oxytocin. Oxytocin is releasing anandamide. Everyone feels better. And it was just a, a, a momentary glance. Then further along the path, there was this guy dressed in a tank top T-shirt with Hell's Angels tattoos on his body, big, heavy uh, S&M bondage chains around his his, his uh, in his jeans. It really, I mean, he looked like a, a really tough character. So we smiled at him too, and he gave us a big grin back. And so you just start to do this, and 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 so you're heating yourself, and the world starts to change. I'll tell you a story about somebody who did this uh, very recently. And actually, a book is coming out by her uh, soon, where she tells her story. But her name is Beth, and she was diagnosed with stage four metastasized breast cancer. Um, she found a lump in her breast, went into this famous cancer hospital called MD Anderson, and they measured it as a, initially, the, 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 the hardest part of it was, was about an inch across, but eventually was measured at two inches across of this jagged uh, invasive tumor. They then wondered if it had spread to other parts of her body. They looked at the lymph nodes under her arms, and sure enough, the lymph nodes under her right arm near the tumor were all inflamed and full of cancer cells rather than being clear. And they then found three spots of inflammation on her right lung. So it looked, I mean, this is this is about as bad as it gets. In fact, the, 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 the oncologist said, Beth, we want you to go straight from my office today to radiation to start your first radiation treatment. And Beth said, I need time to think. I need to talk to my friends. Beth is very well connected. She knows me. She knows Mark Hyman. She knows a lot of top flight doctors. So she called a lot of people and she emailed a lot of us about her diagnosis. And she said, you know, rather than getting treatment, conventional treatment, I'm going to use energy to see what I can change. And she applied energy to every single fast of her life. She quit watching the news. She quit. She turned off the alerts on her phone. She resigned from various committees that were causing her stress that she was doing. She uh, just focused on on her herself. Uh, she 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 really did everything she could to think positively, only positive music, positive movies, positive thoughts. And she was rigid about that. She ruled out all negative media. She quit listening to the news, anything that could possibly make her upset. And she focused on changing her energy. We did surrogate EFT, distant healing on her. She got distant healing from a Qigong master. She did Qigong herself. She meditated every day, cleaned up her diet. And she went back to MD Anderson. Eight weeks later, she got the diagnosis in March, went back to the oncology department two months later, and the tumor had shrunk to 1.4 centimeters from five centimeters. So it had shrunk to about a half an inch, and all the lymph nodes under her right armpit were clear. Later on in August, she had a comprehensive blood panel after doing some more work, and there was no trace of cancer in Beth's body. It's now been uh, two and a half years since that that happened, and no recurrence. So that is what is possible when people do this. Now, when you have millions of people using energy in their love lives and their relationships with their family members and with their bodies and with their colleagues at work, and it spreads all around them, then we have a very different kind of world. And so people are learning that you can you can do this. And you then start to affect other people. Emotional contagion is is taking hold. 
phenomena like that 80% reduction in Google words, Google searches for those racist and homophobic words occurs. And suddenly there's a big, big, big shift in global consciousness. And so we're, we're, we're just, we just need to do our work. Do what it takes to heal yourself. Do what it takes to heal the people you can you can reach with your sphere of influence. Trust that there's a much larger cycle working out in consciousness. And if people, you know, not everybody will believe you. There will be skeptics. There'll be naysayers. There'll be people like read, read Wikipedia, for example. It, there's a group of skeptics who controls the editorial committee there, and they call all of these therapies acupuncture, EFT homeopathy, they call them all pseudoscience. So they control this important source of information for people and they are um they're 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 denying all the science behind these techniques. But you know, we can't change them. We can change ourselves. Change yourself every moment and changing the world will take care of itself. Absolutely. I'll ask you one more question and then I'll uh give you a chance to share where people can find more of your information, because I know you have a bit of a time limit. You know, one of the things that I find to be quite challenging is that this whole scientific materialist mindset is a belief that if you can't weigh it or measure it objectively, then it's not real. So if you talk to people like this about energy fields or dousing or connecting to your soul or any of these kind, even chakras, I mean, I've had in my book, How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy, I used the word zones because I knew so many people would just discount all the information if they saw chakras. In fact, I was giving a workshop one time to a bunch of people on how to do zone exercises. And I said to the people, you know, I'm really talking about chakras, but I didn't call them chakras because so many people have negative opinions about chakras, even though they haven't done any study and don't even really know anything about it. It's just program behavior. And literally within seconds of me saying that, some guy stood up and said, I'm a Christian, and if you believe in chakras, then all this that you're teaching is bullshit. And he just walked out the door. And so, you know, I tell people that have this belief, I say, okay, so you really believe if it can't be weighted or measured and proved in some kind of a scientific study, it's not real. Is that what your opinion is? And they say, yes. I say, okay, then I have a question for you. How important is love in your life and can you weigh and measure it objectively? Well, every single one of them said love is very essential to their life and admitted they can't weigh and measure it objectively. So I say you're just playing a dangerous game and you believe that the only thing that's real is stuff that you can measure, but science is growing all the time. And if you look at what we can measure today, it's the stuff that people said 20 years ago that was BS too, but here we are measuring it and proving it. So I'm just curious... What are your feelings about where science could improve by developing means of evaluating and including subjective realities and experiences as complementary to objective realities and experiences? And how do you take account for subjective realities within your own research? Well, I think that you, I think that what science changes, what what science measures is changing. Uh, One key study was done uh, in the very early 2000s, and it was um, it was a study of AIDS patients done by the University of Miami, and it looked at uh, two things: looked th- thing called viral load, how many AIDS uh, how many AIDS um, viruses are there in your body, and the second uh, question it asked was what was your 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 T cell count? And your T cells are these 
these cells that that there there are these immune cells. Yeah. And <clears throat> as AIDS count goes up, T cell count goes down till the person dies. So that's that was you know, where AIDS AIDS research was was looking at, and um, but they asked a question that no one had thought to ask before. They asked about the spiritual experiences of those AIDS patients. When they crunched the numbers of the study, they found to their absolute amazement, and I, I, I was very close friends at that time with the lead investigator who was dumbfounded by this, the strongest association between the viral load and the white blood cell count, the strongest association wasn't lifestyle, wasn't risky sexual behavior, wasn't age, wasn't any demographic graphic characteristic. It was one strong thing, and that was their spiritual belief. Those that believed in a loving God got better, and those that believed in a punishing God got sicker and died. And so the the nature of their belief was this was the strongest predictor of the course of their physical disease. But no one had ever thought to ask that question before. And that's where science is blind sometimes. Science is asking questions, and it doesn't ever think to ask for things like spiritual experiences. But more and more and more now, we are. We're asking about things like flow states. Are you in flow? I'm uh, working with Andrew Newberg now, based on his book, um, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, to develop an inventory that'll measure these the, the five key characteristics of the enlightenment experience. And if people have these, we'll have more of them. But science it doesn't even, it hasn't been, even been measuring this stuff. So now we're measuring it. And so now we're at least able to, um, to, to see how people change in these dimensions. And so um, that we're, we're, we're starting to ask many more of the right questions. The other big shift is we can look into the body and see what's happening objectively inside you when you have subjective experiences and beliefs. And the MRI is a very good example. So for example, in one study I'm working on right now, an MRI study, people be, will be thinking about um, a negative event or a negative uh, experience in their lives, and the fear center of the brain lights up. After they're treated, after a few sessions of EFT, in this case, they are exposed again to that fearful stimulus and the fear center of the brain is dormant. So we're able in these ways, science is able in these ways to, 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 to produce, to, to see objective correlates of subjective experience. So we hear the reports of people and we then know these things are going on inside their bodies. And after you do that correlation in enough times, uh, like one study I, have, I haven't been able to find the funding for yet, but I've collected a lot of data for is with Joe Dispenza. And we have data from probably, I don't know, two, 2,000 plus people. And um, they come out of a Joe Dispenza workshop after this guided meditation and they describe their experience. Um, once we've got, got, got the study funded, we're going to look at those keywords and literally do a cross correlation with their EEG records and their uh, objective brain states. And so uh, it takes us a while Paul, to figure out how to do these kinds of studies, what to measure, and what's important. But um, the the uh, the the really encouraging thing is that uh, science is doing this more and more and more. Is asking these questions, and we we can, we can quantify these these kinds of 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 of, um, of subject experiences, like whether you believe in loving or punishing God. I mean, that's that's a striking finding. So again, the the take home message there is 
find as much room in your spiritual practice and religion as you possibly can to see God and the universe as benevolent because it has a dramatic effect on your immune system. And so there's this lovely interplay happening now between the subjective and the objective. Yes. A couple of things come to mind real quick. Uh, You know, people ask me quite often, well, what is spirituality? And I, I have a very simple definition, which I think is very appropriate to everything we're discussing here. Spirituality is connecting to a larger whole. And the more you grow spiritually, the more you realize you are the product of a greater whole. Your first realization is that you're a product of the world. Then you realize you couldn't be here without the sun and the moon, which is part of a solar system, which is part of a galaxy, which couldn't be here without a universe. And then we have to say, well, if the Big Bang was real, then it came from something unknown and invisible. And therefore, we're part of something that's so mysterious and so beautiful that we're all really one thing. And then you look at Larry Dossie's book, One Mind, and people's research like Dean Radin and all the people we've been talking about. And there's ample evidence to show for people that are objective and do want to read hard science that spirituality is is more important than religion because religion's full of deities that go to war with each other. But spirituality is really a practice of realizing yourself in oneness with a greater whole. And the more we come into the sense of wholeness, the less sense of isolation and aloneness we have and the more sense of community and love and support we have. And I think that's really ultimately the healing movement that that we're all taking part in, Um, some of us unconsciously, some of us consciously. And I think that's really where what I find your book Mind to Matter really gave me a lot of joy because I found another great resource that I could share with people that need some objective studies and need a well-written book to really um, get enough of a sense of science to say, okay, maybe maybe I can actually be brave enough to shift my perspective here. And the other resource, are you familiar with the book titled Destructive Emotions by the Dalai Lama? No. I think you're going to love that book. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an older book now, but it, it is loaded with pioneering MRI and fMRI studies. It was one of the first books, probably the first book that documented the Dalai Lama brought several very advanced um, monks that were, you know, advanced meditators, people that had meditated for years at a time in caves and things like that. And when they started putting them through fMRIs and MRIs, it blew the researcher's mind. They said, we didn't even know this was humanly possible. And so the book Destructive Emotions can also be gotten on audio. And it's it's very, very good. And it's very in line with what you're talking about. And it gives a lot of the original research and it goes into uh, uh, everything that you're talking about here. Um, with regard to the effects of destructive emotions and how it affects the brain and our behavior and our biology, I think you're going to dig that book. Yeah, um, actually, I, I know the research. Uh, I don't know the book, but that was was done by Richard Davidson and his colleagues at the University of Medicine of Wisconsin. And um, right, I, I actually um, use a scene from that in my uh, my book, This Brain, a scene from, but not 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 the statistics only the experience that they had in the lab when they were standing around the monitor watching this um, this monk whose name is Minger, and Minger was producing 
800 times the amount of gamma in his brain as normal and sustaining it much longer than normal as well. They had never seen anything like it. And they, they, I mean, they were just like clustered around the monitors with their jaws dropping. They had, had no idea this was even possible. So um, that's, uh, I, I, I know that that set of studies and I actually quote from those extensively in my, my forthcoming book, Bliss Brain, because again, the, what we're seeing here, you know, the, these numbers I'm, I'm talking about here, 22% growth in the, in this, in this part of the brain responsible for emotional regulation, the dentate gyrus, in eight weeks, and a four hundred ninety percent increase in in problem solving ability, a five hundred percent increase in productivity. These are massive upgrades to your body, to your brain, stem cell production, telomere length, all of these things happening. And what I'm challenging people to do in mind to matter is that because the benefits are so pervasive. You got to do it, and you you just absolutely must implement these things in in your life. Whether you whether you tap to EFT acupressure, whether you whether you meditate, I have about thirty of these methods in in mind to matter. And it's not that you have to do all thirty, or that one is better than the other. But I urge you to do one that fits your lifestyle, because again, these these aren't subtle, small improvements to your life. This is a radical shifting of the whole substrate of who you are and you do this and you discover superpowers and potential and abilities you had no idea you had before you opened to this so that's that's the crucial thing meditate tap do these 30 things and you'll start to find your life changes dramatically and you want to know something stunningly beautiful about all this it's free (laughs) (laughs) it's free absolutely it's free, but being grumpy and feeling like crap and running around to doctors and therapists and taking pills and hoping somebody can be paid to take your problems away is very expensive. But yeah, you know, it, it might cost a few bucks to buy how to eat, move and be healthier, mind and matter. But the, at the end of the day, it's a it's a, a drop in the bucket compared to what it costs not to stay current with the technology and not to join the greatest scientists in the world and the greatest researchers in the world and the greatest meditators and the greatest lovers. And it's, you know, we're at a time right now where the the kind of the cosmic joke is you can heal yourself, heal the world and become a citizen of the universe for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely true. And um, another really neat study published last, last, um, last month, it showed that optimists live on average 10 years longer than pessimists so again change your consciousness and suddenly your whole life changes you have much a much higher quality of life much longer life and a much longer health span so uh there are just all these reasons to to shift in this way and i think that when you like with, with a book like mind to matter i try and give you enough science to convince you i don't try to give you every last study because there are lots more where those came from yeah. but enough to really make a compelling case to 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 argue that it's worth shifting it's easy it's free and you'll feel and see the benefits like within within days well, I've probably got four or 500 books on this topic and yours was good enough that I reached out to you to share. And right now I'm giving you a great big hug and a kiss through the airways and 
before I say goodbye, where can people find out more about your work, your books, your offerings, your workshops, and things like that? Thank you, Paul. But yeah, there are many touch points here. The The best way to do it is to go to mindmatter.com. So mind2matter.com. And there you can get a couple of chapters free. You can get the eco-meditation instructions free. You can get the EFT mini manual free. You can also click on live events there. And I do many live events. And I've been doing more and more virtual ones as well. So you just join from your computer wherever you are for a live day-long or two-day or three-day workshop with me. So um, I teach, I, I, I lead people in annual retreats, usually going away to a secluded place, and you, you can do a retreat with me. Uh, there, we, we have many certified trainers all over the world who are uh, training others in these methods, and all of those are, are available through that mindtomatter.com website. So just go there, download the free material, try it out, see how you feel, and then really just... Your your intuition will take over past that point. You will know whether it's time to take a workshop, read a book, do something else online. And once you start this growth process, you become addicted to feeling good because that anandamide in your brain is highly addictive. So is a lot of serotonin and dopamine. So you've now engaged all these reward pathways. You just get used to feeling wonderful and then you start to treat yourself well and then that becomes the new you. So again, start at mindbetter.com, go to the website, download those things, try them out, and then see where your intuition takes you past that point. Aho, uh, great spirit. It is done. It is done. It is done. And here's your big kiss. <laughs> I received. Thank you. Hey, what a pleasure. Thank you, Dawson Church. Everybody, get Mind to Matter. Listen to it on audio if you like listening. Read it if you like to read. I did both. I bought the book and listened to it because I wanted to see all the graphs and have some resources for my writing. It's a minor investment for a massive gift. And uh, Dawson, I can't wait to have you back again because we only got to question six out of about 15 <laughs> or 16. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Whenever we can get together, let's do it again, shall we? Happily. I'd love to. Thank you. All right. Big hug. Uh, received and reciprocated. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Dawson Church. You can find out more about Dawson's work online at mindtomatter.com and at eftuniverse.com or follow him on Facebook and Twitter at EFTUniverse. Dawson has a gift for Paul's podcast listeners, a complimentary EFT mini manual and a special report on a being of spirit in a world of abundance. To get your gifts, visit dawsongift.com. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's new site at chikiva.com. 